It's Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferrett. You're with us on the Ideas Network. The state and U.S. Supreme Courts have put judicial politics in the spotlight with major decisions in recent years. We think of the judges and attorneys involved as political appointees and elected officials, but a lot of work goes in behind the scenes that helps shape who gets the opportunity to run for and serve in those roles. New reporting from ProPublica highlights one of the major conservative players in those efforts, Leonard Leo, and how he started his strategy in Wisconsin. They've assembled that reporting into a new podcast. It's called We Don't Talk About Leonard. Here's a listen. The court's current 6-3 to three conservative majority that helped deliver those rulings was the product of long-term planning, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and luck. But the full story runs far deeper than that, and a lot of it can be traced back to one man who's marshaled a vast effort to change who serves on the court, what cases they hear, and how they rule. Although Mr. Leo may not be a household name, His influence on America is almost unbelievable. ProPublica found that Leonard Leo's strategy to shape the U.S. Supreme Court started in Wisconsin, where he worked to build a conservative majority on the state Supreme Court, which has a ripple effect on other areas of the court system. We're learning more about how Leo has influenced state and federal judicial politics and the role Wisconsin played in his success And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. What do you think about the way money is involved in races for Supreme Court, Attorney General, and other positions in the court system? What changes would you like to see? Do you think we need to change the nomination or confirmation processes for federal judges? Call us, 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. Andrea Bernstein works for ProPublica and NPR, and she is the co-host of the podcast We Don't Talk About Leonard. Andrea, welcome to Central Time. Great to be speaking with you. And Andy Kroll is also a reporter for ProPublica and co-host of the podcast. Andy, thanks for joining. Great to be here. So, Andrea, who is Leonard Leo? Introduce him as the main character in your reporting. So, Leonard Leo is someone, and to the extent your listeners have heard of him, what they might have heard was that he was uh, former President Trump's judge whisperer, responsible uh, basically for the nominations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, thus making him one of the people most responsible for the composition of the current court conservative supermajority. And That is pretty much what people know about Leonard Leo. He's not somebody who's had had elective office, who's served on the bench, who's had a title. He's done his work behind the scenes. Most of that uh, as executive vice president of the Federalist Society, which is a group that promotes conservatism in law. Although he's now left and uh, he's running his own business, he's still the co-chair of the board of the Federalist Society. And what we found in our investigation is that Leonard Leo has not just, and I sort of use that word just in, in air quotes, been influential at the U.S. Supreme Court level, but also at the level of state Supreme Courts. And one of his earliest and most sustained efforts uh, on that front was in Wisconsin. Well, Andy, before we get into some of the specifics, how would you broadly characterize the influence Leo has had on conservative politics in America overall? I mean, you'd have to look at a bunch of different areas of 
not just American politics, but American jurisprudence and even society writ large to answer that question. I mean, he has cultivated and elevated an entire generation of young conservative lawyers, basically identifying people when they're in law school and helping them ascend through the ranks until, in some cases, they reach state Supreme Courts, federal courts, or even the United States Supreme Court. So he has really sort of built this pipeline of young future Scalia's, future Clarence Thomas's, who are in turn changing the direction of the American judiciary, changing the direction uh, of American history, frankly. He has also, however, really pushed the country in the direction of using and embracing uh, huge amounts of money, much of it anonymous and extremely difficult to trace, to fund battles in Supreme Court nominations, to fund battles in state Supreme Court campaigns and elections, to empower Republican attorneys general who have been really active at the state level in filing lawsuits and challenging legislation. Uh, you You can see his influence and the imprint of that influence on, again, as Andrea pointed out, not just the Supreme Court, but the state courts, state elections, law schools, and a, a whole bunch of legal positions and offices around the country that, frankly, a lot of people don't think about. They don't think about their state attorney general. They don't think mm-hmm. about their state solicitor general. But Leonard Leo did, and he figured out how to put the right people in his mind in those positions to have a real impact on on the laws and uh, the direction of this country. Andrea, talk to me a little bit about the Federalist Society. I know that you said that Leo's kind of affiliation with the Federalist Federalist Society has changed a little bit, but how does that group get involved in Wisconsin politics and and who or or what brought them in? So the Federalist Society began in the 1980s, and its founders at the time felt themselves as conservative law students and lawyers really out in the cold. They felt that the judiciary uh, was at that time uh, really controlled by the center and the left, and they wanted to create their own pipeline. Uh, But what we have found is that in the the 50 years or so, uh, 40 or 50 years since that started, they have really um, outpaced anything, uh, any structure Uh, on the progressive side. And one of the things that was a real insight of Leonard Leo's uh, in the administration of George W. Bush was that he could set up um, a group which has had various names, but at the time it was called the Judicial Confirmation Network, which was there wasn't even really political dark money groups at that time. It Mm -hmm. was sort of pre-Citizens United, but this was one of the first. It was a group a not the kind of nonprofit that didn't have to disclose its donors and that could uh, raise money and uh, run ad campaigns for um, the first of them were for the U.S. Supreme Court for the nominations of John Roberts and Samuel Alito to the U.S. Supreme Court. So once those nominations were uh, successful, the Federal Society turned its attention to the state courts. And this was back around 2006, 2007. And uh, one of the key things the Federalist Society 
was focusing on was states that have judicial selections, uh, but it singled out Wisconsin very early on as a state with uh, an election of some import. And the election that was coming up, and many of your listeners will probably remember this race, was the race uh, was when Michael Gableman challenged sitting Justice Lewis Butler in a very uh, racially charged campaign. And what you saw was a lot of money coming in and a lot of advertising. And, and we were told by another former uh, Wisconsin justice, Janine Geske, that this was a really a surprise, that they just hadn't seen any race like this that was so negative and so heated. And what we learned in our reporting is that uh, Leonard Leo was involved in raising the money uh, for the challenger, Justice Michael Gableman, or then would be Justice uh, mm-hmm. Michael Gableman's race, and had a list of names passed along to the campaign with the message to call these uh, donors, these wealthy individuals, and to tell them Leonard told you to call, and that each of the donors gave the maximum allowable. So this was a really surprising finding, that he was personally involved in this way, that it wasn't just about... Um, a sort of pushing the courts in a conservative direction, but about uh, getting involved in specific races and pushing specific people uh, in a more conservative and more partisan direction on state Supreme Courts. Andy, do you have a sense of how important it was for Leo to find success in Wisconsin with this strategy and then grow that across the country? Wisconsin is such a launching pad for not just the work that Leonard Leo did, but across, you know, the different political battles or across the different, um, uh, you know, key events that we've had in the last really 15 to 20 years. I mean, you see so much of the political and policy fighting in Wisconsin and the players involved in those battles then either take their playbooks and take their money and go to other states or... Uh, or, or take those things national in terms of candidates or, or elected officials in Wisconsin. I mean, I think some, another really important part of our story that bears on Wisconsin is the fact that in all of these emails that came out about the John Doe investigations, if again, WPR listeners probably remember this, mm-hmm. these were um, ongoing criminal investigations centering around then Governor Scott Walker. Uh, having to do with possible campaign finance violations and whether there was illegal coordination happening. And in a trove of documents that came out about this, these John Doe investigations that the Guardian actually first published, what you found, and this is what we wrote about most recently, was Leonard Leo appears in this trove. And so Leonard Leo was not only involved in the Gableman-Butler race, which I think is a race to underscore what Andrea said, really set a new tone for state Supreme Court elections in other states, not only just in Wisconsin, but in other states as well. And Leo is involved in that. But also you see Leo involved in helping Scott Walker's administration, and especially as it related to the composition of the Wisconsin Supreme Court and how that court would affect the Walker administration when it came to the John Doe investigations. And this is, you know, several years after the Gableman Butler race. And so again, time and time again, we're seeing Leo and his machine, frankly, paying a close attention to Wisconsin, 
knowing that, you know, what happens in Wisconsin can happen in other states and that really Wisconsin has been a Republican fashion in certain ways for a number of years and that they needed to succeed there if a sort of larger strategy was going to succeed elsewhere in the country. We're talking with ProPublica reporters Andrea Bernstein and Andy Kroll about their reporting on money and judicial politics and their new podcast, We Don't Talk About Leonard. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think of the political polarization of Supreme Court justices? Do you think we need to change the way we elect or appoint them? If so, how? And what would you see done differently? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue this conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. Right now, we're picking up the conversation with Andrea Bernstein and Andy Kroll. They're both reporters for ProPublica. They've been covering conservative legal activist Leonard Leo and his influence on money in judicial politics in Wisconsin and across the country. You can hear their reporting in their new podcast series, We Don't Talk About Leonard. And we want to hear from you, too. 800-642-1234 is the number to call. What do you think? about the ways we elect and appoint judges and other court officials. What questions do you have about money and judicial politics? The number, 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. And another part of Leo's broader strategy is to support specific candidates for attorney general and solicitor general. We touched on that a little bit, but can you, can you talk about why those roles matter in this political strategy? State attorneys general are really an overlooked part of the larger legal landscape in this country. I don't think the influence in the role that these AGs play really came into focus for a lot of people. And maybe I'm speaking for myself a little bit here as well until the two terms uh, of Barack Obama's presidency. And I zero in on those two terms for a specific reason, which is time and time again, you saw Republican attorneys generals around the country coming together and filing lawsuits, challenging major policies brought by the Obama administration, challenging policies around consumer protection, policies around new banking reforms enacted after the financial crash of 08 and 09, challenging new regulations from the Environmental Protection Agency to try to respond to the climate crisis. AG's have the basically the easiest chance to file these kinds of cases you know they they represent the people of their state they can bring a case as a plaintiff about as easy as any plaintiff can get it before the supreme court and what we saw as well during those obama years was really a sort of organization a lot of inflows of money a much more ideological and political strategy to get those ags to use their power to challenge these major laws brought by a Democratic presidency. And you've seen a little bit of it uh, after that when Donald Trump was president and Democratic AGs uh, sort of followed that playbook, but it was really pronounced during the Obama years. And Leonard Leo, again, was an instrumental figure, not just in helping elect candidates for AG as they are in most states and then getting them in office, but also finding ways to bring those AGs together. And even as we found in our reporting, getting on phone calls with attorneys general in Texas or Oklahoma and urging them. Some told us it felt more like pressuring them 
to bring cases that, you know, were also in the best interest of some of Leonard Leo's biggest donors. Mm -hmm. So he's really closely involved with these AGs. I think he recognized their importance earlier than a lot of other people did. Andrea, talk a little bit about the U.S. Supreme Court. Justices are appointed by the president once a previous judge retires or dies. So how was Leo able to influence the court's conservative majority from the outside? How did that work, really? Yeah, so this is a really interesting thing that, um, you know, we sort of um, we sort of kind of knew, but really hit home in our reporting is that um, it wasn't enough for conservatives and Republicans to have justices that were uh, appointed by Republican presidents. And fairly early on in his career, Leonard Leo came to understand that you could have an appointee of a Republican president sign a decision that he found abhorrent, case in point, the Casey decision, which was authored by three U.S. Supreme Court justices who uh, were appointed by Republicans. That was a decision upholding the legal right to abortion. So Leo set to work on not just having uh, conservative justices, but conservative justices who agreed with his hard line positions. And this is where the money that he would raise from the Judicial Crisis Network, Judicial Confirmation Network, became the Judicial Crisis Network, came in, that it would influence uh, the passing, uh, the the confirmation of specific judges. And it would also sort of create a, a pressure uh, in Washington to name these specific people. That coupled with having the right cases, right, for uh, for his particular ideological uh, viewpoint, having the right cases come from the right judges and the right attorneys general, ensure that he would get the kind of decisions that he wanted. For example, the Dobbs decision overturning abortion uh, was a case that, that Leo had championed uh, and celebrated when it passed. These kind of cases don't just happen. They get there because somebody like Leonard Leo and his allies are engineering that they arrive at the U.S. Supreme Court. We've often compared him in our reporting to Robert Moses. He built an infrastructure for the judiciary, and very few people understood that he was doing it until this infrastructure was all built. We might think of our public-facing political leaders as having the most influence on politics, but Andy, I'm curious what you think. Do you think Leo is able to have more of a broad influence because he's not in public office? I, I absolutely think that. I think that his decision to operate behind the scenes and to forego credit, or at least not actively seek out credit for much of the 30 or 40 years that he has been doing this work contributed to his success and helped build this influence that again today um, is pretty much unrivaled among anyone who is not an elected official or a judge on a bench. There really isn't anyone who fills this role and really hasn't been anyone in history. We talk to historians, we talk to experts on the court and we would ask them this question, you know, so who was the predecessor to Leonard Leo? And we would describe all the things Leo has done and they would sort of, there would be a bit of silence on the other end of the line. And they would say, you know, I don't know if there is someone who has, who has done what he's done before or since. So it's, it, it really is a sort of testament to uh, someone who here where I am in Washington, a town full of people who, 
uh, don't want anyone standing between them and a television camera, someone who actually is okay with foregoing the limelight and sort of toiling in semi-obscurity, you, you can get a lot done and you can have a pretty incredible influence. And, and I think, again, Leonard Leo seemed to recognize that from fairly early on. And it undoubtedly contributed to the amount of power and success that he has had changing the American judiciary. We're growing a little bit short on time here, but we did have a, fo- have a phone call I wanted you to quickly address. Andrea, uh, we had a caller from uh, Mike from Kenosha, who in his his main point is that, well, he appreciates the, the research and he, he, he thinks no one man could really have this much influence, this level of influence on American politics. Briefly, what do you think about that, Andrea? Well, I encourage him to listen to the podcast and read the accompanying article at ProPublica.org. Just let me give you one quick example. Uh, Leo was, as as we found out, uh, personally involved in promoting the career of Dan Kelly. I'm sure everybody is familiar with his race. Now, obviously, Dan Kelly uh, did not win uh, his race for judge. Janet Protasiewicz won. But this atmosphere where it's... um, as one uh, justice described it to us, justices are now seen as super legislators rather than independent authorities is a real achievement uh, Mm. of Leonard Leo. And just yesterday in North Carolina, which is another state, uh, same politics as Wisconsin, as one person described it, but different weather, uh, Mm. where Leo worked on the courts. Just yesterday, a a new conservative majority in the Supreme Court uh, saw fruit in a decision that it had made this court had overturned a decision of its predecessor of just months earlier when it was in a democratic iteration. And just yesterday, North Carolina voted the fruits of that decision, which is a heavily gerrymandered congressional map, which is believed to give right, right. Republicans a three seat majority. Now that has national implications. Yes. I'm going to have to stop you there. We're out of time. But Andrea, Andy, thank you so much. Fascinating discussion. They are reporters for ProPublica and their podcast is called We Don't Talk About Leonard. I'm Shireen Seward and for Rob Ferrett, you're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shireen Seward in for Rob Ferrett. Now, as political debates over how to address PFAS in Wisconsin continue, we're taking a look at the health effects of these so-called forever chemicals, which can be present in drinking water, nonstick cookware, clothing, and more. Exposure to PFAS has known effects on many parts of the body, including the thyroid, the kidneys, and liver. Exposure to PFAS during infancy and childhood is associated with reduced immune function. Scientists are still trying to understand what other effects forever chemicals may have on human health, including how it may affect pregnancy and the risk of developing breast cancer. We're talking about the risks PFAS pose to human health, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you want to know about PFAS and human health? Are PFAS present in your drinking water where you live? What action do you want to see on this issue? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at WPR.org. Sue Fenton is the director of the North Carolina State University Center for Human Health and the Environment and the Research Translation Coordinator for the Superfund Research Program on PFAS in North Carolina. She specializes in reproductive endocrinology and received her BA, MS, and PhD from UW-Madison. Sue, welcome to Central Time. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Shereen. It's great to be here. 
What ways are scientists sure right now that PFAS affect human health? What do we know? Well, we do know that um, most people are have it in their blood um, and that there are very few who don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately. We also know that there are many associations in human health to um, exposures that uh, they that people have had. And now we know that some of those exposures can be recapitulated in animal models or cell models, where we've actually on purpose exposed those animal models or cell models to the PFAS of interest. Um, and we have seen similar health outcomes as as those that have been reported in, in human populations. So, so are we talking the, about things like thyroid disease, cancers? Yeah, yes. So, so fatty liver is one thing um, that we have seen and like metabolic disease. So obesity, um, um, increased liver disease in animal models and humans have been reported. Thyroid uh, effects are shown in most animal models now that have been tested with PFAS. And also some endocrine um, issues like um, mammary gland development, lactation, um, inability to lactate, I should say, Mm -hmm. um, has been shown in both people and rodent models, as well as small birth weight in um, the offspring or the infant. So tell us a little bit more about the uh, the way that developing fetuses and infants can be affected by PFAS. Sure. So we know that in animals, the more the exposure increases, the worse the effect is. Um, and And there are associations in humans like that also. So there are enough studies now that uh, mathematical modelers have shown that for a certain percent increase in PFAS, you can expect a certain decrease in infant size. We don't know exactly how that happens yet. We think there is um, involvement of the placenta during development. Hmm. Um, so maybe um, the PFAS targets the placenta, but we really aren't sure exactly of the mechanism yet. A lot of people are working on that. One thing that caught my eye was seeing that PFAS could result in reduced response to vaccines in children. That took me by surprise. Why? Um, PFAS cause immune suppression. Um, And this is an interesting story because the antibodies that an infant is born with comes from the mom. So she transferred those antibodies to the baby through the placenta and through breast milk. And um, it's possible that it all starts in the womb. So it may be affecting the mom's immune system also, in addition to the infant or the child. Um, So they have less ability to raise a response to a vaccine. So you need these antibodies in your body to be able to respond to the vaccination um, so that you won't be affected by it. And this, this, this immune response um, is definitely affected by uh, PFAS, both in animal models and in humans. When we're talking about 
adults, uh, you know, why do PFAS affect our immune function? How does that work? Well, uh, there's about three different ways that it can do that. Um, I don't know that the full story is out yet. I don't know that. So B cells and, and the immune response is actually affected. And there may be some effect um, at other various um, levels in the immune response. So I just know that there are three different ways, three different methods, <laughs> mechanisms, I guess, sure. um, that PFAS have affected the immune system. So it's not just a single thing that it affects. There, There's like multiple levels where you can have a negative impact by PFAS. So, I mean, that's important. And and PFAS can affect multiple organs, too. So it may affect a binding protein and uh, the way the cells mature or something like that. So there are definitely multiple ways that you can do that. Sue Fenton is the director of the NC State University Center for Human Health and, and, and the Environment and an expert on PFAS. Are you concerned about the health risks from your own exposure? Have you changed your water consumption habits as a result? Call us, 800 642 Sue, how quickly is the science emerging here? I feel like we didn't know half of this stuff five years ago. Or is that, is uh, that just are, my perception? You are exactly right. Yes, you are exactly right. Things are moving incredibly quickly. Um, so in the last few years, I've been involved in writing uh, really big reviews on the health effects of PFAS. So I've published one of them with several other experts in the field um, in a journal. And then I was just recently involved in the PFAS report to Congress that kind of uh, characterized the effects, all of the known health effects of PFAS and the knowledge gaps. So now we're getting a little more specific about the knowledge gaps. You know, before it was like we didn't even know all the target tissues, but now we know the target tissues and we now we want to know how exactly the PFAS are affecting these tissues so that maybe we could have intervention. So the number of papers published on PFAS in the last five years has been exponential. <laughs> why why do you think that is? Yeah, why, that. I mean, why, why is that? Why is there kind of this new sense of urgency that didn't seem to really exist um, a few years ago? I think because the people in the White House are really paying attention to it. I mean, there's a real, there's a real urgent need to protect people in affected communities. And um, our elected officials are now calling for that. So there's money available for research that we did not have before. And there's a real concentrated um, effort to protect not only affected communities, but also military and civilian um, workers who work you know, with um, that put out fires at military bases and at airports with uh, aqueous film-forming foams that may contain PFAS. So they have a, quite an exposure also. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the relationship between PFAS exposure and COVID infection risk? Is there a correlation there, uh, or don't we know yet? Uh, there are numerous studies ongoing right now. Um, there are some initial um, 
papers that that do show an association between uh, elevated PFAS exposure and more severe COVID um, outcomes mm-hmm. or um, side of, side effects, I guess. Um, but there are numerous studies ongoing now. I think we'll know more in about a year. Um, it takes a little while to gather all that information and then, you know, analyze it and process it. But there are numerous people that I know who are working on that out, on those outcomes. We have Janet on the phone from La Crosse. Uh, Janet, hi. Hello. Thanks Thank for calling. You for me. Sure. Thank you. Um, so, what, what would you like I to know? Um, I just moved to the La Crosse area last February. And I was very careful of selecting my home, but I wanted to live on French Island, which is where the airport is, and there's a big issue with PFAS. So, um, but when I moved in February, I signed up to get Culligan water, um, and I used that exclusively not only for me, but for my dog as well, because we're only two people in the household. Mm -hmm. Um, And listening to your show, I was hearing some of the concerns that that um, interest me would be like the immune system. Um, I'm 68, so I'm not an infant, but I'm on the other end of the distribution curve mm-hmm. <laughs> where um, I can become more vulnerable to a lot of things. So the immune system and then my dog is on thyroid pills. Um, she came here with those, so this is not new, but... You know, the types of things that PFAS can um, impact, I'm finding very interesting to hear on your show because they're part of my life and part of the choice of where I chose to move to, knowing this, but thankful that the city is offering Culligan water and I hope it doesn't come from the same source. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Janet. You know, that actually brings up a, a question. So I'm, I'm really wondering about the risk to household pets. Um, should we be worried about sure. that? Sure. Um, I, you know, if they're drinking the water, they have a little smaller blood volume. So their internal levels might actually get to higher levels than the adults living in the house. Um, because they def- it can definitely bioaccumulate, some PFAS can definitely bioaccumulate in our pets also. Um, there's very little investigation in that area. I know there are a lot of people interested in it, but there's not very much funding for those types of studies. So unfortunately, we don't know a lot. But for all intensive purposes, yes, it could definitely accumulate in your dogs. But if you're wondering about your water, if your water says that it's purified by being either distilled or reverse osmosis distilled, there's a very good chance that it has very little PFAS in it. So you want to look for water, bottled water at least, that says it's purified by distillation. That will definitely help. Okay, good to know. We're talking about how PFAS affect human health with Sue Fenton. She is director of the NC State University Center for Human Health and the Environment and an expert on how PFAS affect pregnant people and developing fetuses. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Have you experienced negative health outcomes related to PFAS? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. 
You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shireen Seward in for Rob Ferret. We're talking about how PFAS affect human health with Sue Fenton, director of the NC State University Center for Human Health and the Environment. We want to hear what you think, too, at 800-642-1234. What do you want to know about the health effects of PFAS? Call 800-642-1234 or email us at ideas at wpr.org. So we're going to go to the phone. We have Connie with us now from Pewaukee. Hi, Connie. Thanks for calling. Hello. I was wondering about absorption through the skin. The city is saying that it's safe to shower in the water. Unfortunately, my location, my home, I can't get like a whole house purification system. And I've seen studies that go both ways about it being able to be absorbed. So I'm interested in your input on that. Great question, Connie. What do you think? Yeah, so there all of the PFAS can that have been tested thus far have been shown to be able to be absorbed through the skin. However, the amount that you absorb is probably not going to be more than if you drank a, a glass of water. Um, you're going to absorb it more efficiently if you're eating or drinking it or even inhaling it. Um, so, yes, it can be absorbed, um, but that is going to be a little less than other routes of exposure for you. Also, um, if if your levels are really high, it, if you would have some irritation of your skin um, from at least from what's been published, um, that if it, if there was a high enough exposure to PFAS. Okay, thanks for answering that question. Sandy from Columbus called but couldn't stay with us. And Sandy's question, if PFAS in individual blood systems can contribute to a person's health outcomes with a COVID infection, couldn't PFAS also contribute to negative health outcomes after a spike protein vaccine? Well, um, actually, some of the best data on, um, you know, for us to understand that PFAS cause immune suppression is in children after they got like tetanus or measles vaccines, they've actually measured them um, not being able to respond as well. They didn't have as much of a titer to the vaccination after after their um, vaccinations. So that's really where we under, understood that PFAS cause immune suppression and can um, affect your ability to um, mount a response to a vaccine. So. There's a chance that there's, um, a, you know, that all vaccines um, could be less effective in people that have high PFAS exposures, but we don't have that answer yet. So I don't know the exact answer to her question, but, you know, we do know that it's more, you know, there are multiple vaccines that this has happened with that they're less responsive. People are less responsive. Yeah, Sandy, that was it's a great really question. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, let's let's go to Stella from Sturgeon Bay. Hi, Stella. Thanks for calling. Hi. Um, I have a question. We have a four-filter um, reverse osmosis system, two pre and one post, and the reverse osmosis um, filter. We've used that for years, and um, we are pets our chickens and the wild birds all get reverse any any living creature gets the ro water my question is does ro does the reverse osmosis system remove the pfas hmm. do you know um the, so... that yes that is the only system that i know of so far that removes most all pfas 
So some of the granulated activated charcoal filters only remove some PFAS, but the reverse osmosis method um, removes nearly all of them. That's and great to completely. know. Yeah, that's great to mm-hmm. know. I, and a lot of people are are curious about those water purification systems. So that I'm so glad that Stella sure. asked that question. Uh, we have mm-hmm. Lee now with us calling from the town of Campbell. Hi, Lee. Thanks for calling. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, just to tag on a little bit to the discussion about um, the filtration systems, because it's really important for people that live in communities that have known PFAS. Uh, number one is most communities don't have a filter collection program. So if you know you have PFAS in your water uh, and it's being absorbed and you're throwing that spent highly concentrated contaminated filter in your trash, you have to worry about the waste stream. Um, but the other part um, of it is that you know, it was mentioned earlier about uh, medical knowledge regarding PFAS. And um, it's very upsetting to me that both 3M and DuPont knew as early as the 1950s how toxic these chemicals were because they saw the results of that PFAS exposure in their employees. And now here we are 50 years later, plus 50 to 70 years later, still trying to catch up with the research. So I'm grateful that the government is investing in it. Those of us who live in PFAS-contaminated communities um, definitely will benefit from that research. But, um, you know, once you've been drinking it your whole life and you're living with the health effects, um, it's hard to go back. Thanks a lot, Lee. I appreciate the call. Sue, what do you think about what Lee just said? Well, she hit the nail on the head. Um, it is. It, it is. Uh, it's not something you can get out of your body very easily. And unfortunately, the best way to lower your levels is to, is for women is to have a child and to breastfeed, um, mm-hmm. both of which, you know, are, mm-hmm. are wonderful things in your life. But unfortunately, it transfers it to the infant. And really, there's no other way. So, you know, yeah. She's totally right. I'm curious how how long and at what levels does someone have to be exposed to to have these health risks? Does it vary from person to person? Is it a, a, do you have to be mm-hmm. you know consume a lot of right. it or touch right. a lot of it? Right, and it, and it yes yes, and it, it depends on what you're exposed to. So if it's PFOA, PFOA, or PFOS, mm-hmm. or PFHXS or something larger than that, like PFNA, um, some of those accumulate um, quite dramatically in your body. There are some smaller chain things, things that were produced by 3M, that may not accumulate as much. So you could be exposed to them for a very long time and still have fairly low levels in your body. Um, So it depends on how much you've been exposed to, how long, and what you've been exposed to, and how many different PFAS you've been exposed to. So unfortunately, there's no straight answer to that, but um, they accumulate. Just in our last minute together, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is proposing new regulations for PFAS, all uh, 20 parts per per trillion for PFOA, PFOS, 
450 parts per billion for PFBS. What do you think those limits? Do they line up with what the science shows is safe? Well, um, they, they're they a little higher than what the federal government is, is actually. So the U.S. EPA, Office of Water, is proposing levels that are lower than that for all of the ones that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they have used all of the most current science to develop the maximum contaminant limits that led to their decisions on how much to regulate these mm-hmm. chemicals at. So... Wisconsin's uh, current uh, thought, um, I do think they have a very strong case okay. for the levels that they've developed. Sue, we're fading in and out here. I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a great discussion. Sue Fenton, the director of NC State University Center for Human Health and the Environment on today's Central Time. I read a story this week on NPR about a 104-year-old woman who went skydiving earlier this month. She died about a week later. And the Guinness World Records is still working to confirm if Dorothy Hoffner broke the record for the oldest person to jump from a plane. She was 104. She was 100 the first time she jumped. Now, this made me think. And I'm not planning to skydive anytime soon. That's not my thing. I'm not trying to break a world record. But the experience had me thinking about how important it is not to wait to do the things you dream of doing. So for me, it's a reminder to live without regrets, to buy the dress, order the dessert, take that trip, and, well, go ahead and jump out of that plane if you want to. Might not set any records like Dorothy, but it sure beats living with regret. This is Central Time. I'm Shireen Seward, and for Rob Ferret, you're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. <laughs> 